0: You know, what I want to know is is how, how does one get involved in doing rock work as a woman? Do you really, really want to know? Or do you just want the rehearsed response that I always give? What would happen? if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves. Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth you're listening to him I'd like to report that I went on in life and lived happily ever after but it really wasn't the case I had uncovered just a beginning of unveiling dysfunction. You can't just take a year and take away alcohol and expect life to just miraculously evolve and you become this happy person in the world. It just didn't work that way for me. Not to negate or discount any of the things that I had learned or any of the things that I had been willing to do and try. And I was very grateful and, and remain very grateful for all of that. But when you don't know that you don't know, that's the tricky part. There was one magic wand that I was given during that first year. And it literally was a gift, and that was the gift of choice, I never realized in my entire life that I actually had a choice and learning that I had a choice in every single thing that happens in my day. That was very new to me. But by learning about choice, I also had to learn about consequences and I had to learn that choice, not chance, will determine my destiny. And by making certain choices, I have to take responsibility for those choices and the outcomes. And how am I going to change? There's a lot of disillusionment in recovery there's a lot of expectations that, that I put on myself. I really just expected to stop drinking and go to the meetings and do what I was told and then life would just unfold and things would work out and the right people would show up and the right situations would show up. And once again, though, that was this magical thinking I don't think there's anything wrong with magical thinking, but I believe for myself that there were many, many, many dark layers that have to be dealt with, that had to be dealt with in a manner that takes a long time. And the only way to learn most of the time is through making mistakes. And... I made many, many, many mistakes, many choices that I didn't know were mistakes. So my relationship with Carol continued. I was advanced at the Silk Greenhouse, bumped up to the assistant manager, and started making $50,000 a year. And at that time, that was a lot of money. And so that kind of freed me up to pay off some things. And financially, things were getting a little bit better. Um, And I remember Carol and I took a trip down to Mexico. I'd never gone on a trip like this. And it was just so fun and so different. Of course, you know, seeing a lot of alcohol, the first thing we got off the plane, they hand you a cerveza and they're like, oh, cerveza. And I'm like, no, Coca Cola. But. This trip was very important because we went out to Chichen Itza, which were part of the Mayan ruins, one of the, the spots where there were pyramids and these, these huge architectural structures. And I'll never forget getting off this bus and walking out into this area and looking up at the massive stone creations. At this point, I had not had any kind of contact with rock or stone, except playing in the creek when I was a kid. But I'll never forget that day. It was a very powerful moment. The minute I walked out and looked and saw all this, I had chills on the back of my neck. I had chills all over my body. And I remember consciously thinking in my mind, I'm going to make something like this. I'm going to do something like this. It was almost like a memory. It was almost like I already knew that I had either done it or been there. It was very, very, very strange. And, of course, I had started looking into past lives and things of that nature. So I knew that I had a deep connection With the the stonework and this these these ruins. And it was a very eerie, eerie feeling. There were very dark stories about some of these spots, you know, some of the sacrificial things and throwing the virgin down in the pit. I mean, all kinds of weird shit. But I took it all in and it really resonated with me on some deep level. So I kind of put it on the back burner, like I don't know how this is going to play out in my life, but I knew that I took something away from there that was very powerful. Well, my relationship with Carol had started deteriorating because, for one thing, I was 24, 25, she was 42, 43. We're into the second year. You know, when the honeymoon wears off of any kind of relationship, whether it be a a love relationship, a friendship, a work relationship, once that that honeymoon wears off and the underbelly starts to show, I you know, I don't want to play anymore. I don't want to be there anymore. And that started the whole miserable not really wanting to deal with anything because I didn't know how to deal in a love relationship. So any kind of suggestion that another person would make to me, my back would go up, my walls would go up, and I'd be pissed, and I didn't want to talk about it. And I didn't want to deal with it. It should just be better my work life was going pretty good. I'd gotten a lot of recognition from the owners of Silk Greenhouse, the headquarters, and I had come up with a plan to hang these chains all over the inside of this big showroom we had. This thing was huge. And I we had so much inventory that there was nowhere to put the shit. So I invented these like hanging structures to hang wicker and to hang all these baskets and containers. And it was really cool. And they'd taken pictures, sent it to the headquarters and I'd gotten, you know, a bonus for this kind of thing. And they incorporated it in all the stores all over the Southeast. So I knew that I had an eye for presentation I knew that I had a certain ability that was just, that came naturally to me. It was kind of like space utilization and just a, a good eye. And I don't know where that came from, but I kind of enjoyed the accolades. I enjoyed making money. But the thing that started happening was that I couldn't take a lot of criticism And Rosemary, my boss, had now gotten advanced to like the district manager. So she moved on and then they made me manager. I was the youngest manager in the company. Well, that had a lot of responsibility. And that meant that that people who were older than me had to answer to me. And they didn't like that. And I didn't like it when they didn't like it. And I remember putting up this poster over my desk that said, get happy or get out. And I was kind of harsh. And another thing that began to happen was that I would be very self-righteous in these AA meetings. Like, you know, new people come in and they start whining and crying. And now that I've got a year or so, a couple of years under my belt of not drinking, and what I perceived as working the steps, I believed that I could have this kind of tough love exterior. Now, I wasn't mean, but I also wasn't like 100% compassionate, and I wasn't loving unconditionally. But that's another thing. You don't jump from being a street, alcoholic, hanging out with a hook or selling ice cream to be in this compassionate soul that loves everybody. It just doesn't work like that. Well, I met a woman in AA in one of the meetings, and she was this strikingly gorgeous woman. She was very tall and very thin, and she had dark brown eyes and kind of short, kind of beautiful, short, kind of cropped hair, really cool woman. She was a corporate executive, and she had just moved to the area, and we became friends, and before you know it, she had gotten a job offer down to where? Tampa, Florida. And she had befriended Carol and I, and she was a straight woman, and she had a boyfriend, and apparently had gotten pregnant. She was 40 and decided to, she was going to have this baby, but this guy wanted nothing to do with it. So she was going to have to raise it on her own. And she had some prior children from a another marriage that were actually, these kids were living with their father because she was so busy in her work life. Well, we had become friends and she had gotten this big job offer down in Tampa. So she approached Carol and I, And ask us if we would be willing to relocate and move with her and be her personal gardener slash pool person, that would be me, and personal chef and nanny, and that would be Carol. And we were like blown away. And it would be like we would just totally have a whole half of this big house. We would have this this new life and a new place, because there's always the geographical cure. You know, if I move here, then I'll be happy. I'll be near the beach. I was a little bit gun shy of Tampa just because of my ice cream days and my experiences that I had had. But I always loved the beach. Things had gone south at at Silk Greenhouse because emotionally I was not equipped to manage 28 people and to handle all the different circumstances. And so Rosemary, my boss, the district manager now, had brought in this other woman named Renee who had come from Pier One Imports. She was a snake in the grass, basically. She came in and I was to train her so that she could take over a new store that they were opening in the metro Atlanta area. Well, being young and ridiculously naive, I showed her all my cards. I told her everything I knew about the company and how to do it and what to do and when to do it. She already had retail experience and and she she was slick. So the next thing I know, I'm getting the shaft and being demoted to become her assistant manager. And looking back on it, now I know and I realize I wasn't equipped emotionally or mentally to handle that job. I could, I could hands-on do some damn work, and I was good at it. But as far as personal relations, I did not have what it, what it took to not be passive-aggressive and to not be controlling and to not be pouty and to not be weird. I just didn't have the tools in the toolbox to deal with all these different personalities. And so I eventually just quit. I got mad one day and I went, fuck it. And I quit. And so I drew unemployment for a while and I started going to the health club and, and Carol was always my biggest cheerleader and she had, uh, convinced me to enroll in college. And so I got back into school and I started going to Kennesaw State College and there in, in Georgia and I was going to major in psychology. So I had my all of my stuff transferred from Brevard College and from South Carolina. And by the time it all transferred to a different state, it made me like a damn sophomore. And I was like, oh, you're fucking kidding? I got to go another, you know, how many more years just to get where I was? So I lasted about a semester. And I actually did very well. I made straight A's, but I could not get my ego out of the way. And I think that's one of the the biggest problems is that there's this power struggle that goes on with yourself. And it's it's like lies. I think we all have a set of personal lies. And I know for myself I had a whole set of personal lies that I believed. Now that I was moved to Tampa, here we are, and I will never forget walking out the first night that we got there, and there was this huge swimming pool, and I had a little cat, a kitty cat that somebody had given me named Sonny Haney. He was really pretty, looked like a Himalayan, kind of blondish with a black face and white feet. He was real cute, And he walked around. It was a screened-in pool situation. But I remember walking out and looking at that pool. And this shot of adrenaline or fear or something went through my stomach. And I was just, oh, no, what have I done? And I really felt like I had made a huge mistake. But it was done. I was there. So the months ahead of us were really interesting and without going into too much detail, we found out the woman that we had moved down there with, who was this business tycoon, very sharp, very smart, very successful, was basically a sex addict or a love addict. And started having different men come over in the evening, and she wanted us to pretend like we just worked for her. And it got really weird really quick. And Carol was supposed to be sort of the nanny chef and then get out of the way once dinner was served to the date that was coming over. And I was going to be the gardener and the pool keeper Well, I was finding AA meetings because I needed to just go get out of there and vent what was happening. And I met this woman who was an artist. And her name was Barbara. And she was very nice. I really liked her. And she had a lot of depression. And I hung out with her a lot. I just thought she was a cool woman, and I saw her artwork. She took me by her house one day, and we looked at everything, and she was very significant to me. She really helped me through that time because I just needed some kind of connection. After coming from having so many friends and so much support, it was very hard to not have a person, and she was Carol's age. She was 42, 43, somewhere in that range. And I remember we were going to this meeting and it was a, they called it a eating meeting It's when everybody brings a covered dish. And I said, well, I don't have anything to bring. And I'll never forget. She said, just bring a brown paper bag and come to the kitchen. (laughs) And I did. I just had a brown paper bag and I came in and she said, just come to the kitchen, act like you're bringing something. It's fine. And she was funny and she was dark and she was depressed and and she would supplement her artwork by being a floral designing person, but also she would deliver on Mother's Day, Easter, things of that nature. So I remember going out with her on Mother's Day and making deliveries. And that was really a lot of fun to see people open their door and you handed them this beautiful bouquet and they're all, oh, my son sent me that or whatever. And and she and I laughed our head off through the day. And and so for that connection, I was happy and I remember mentioning to her one day, only because someone had said it to me, about antidepressants. And that was a very new thing that was kind of coming into the recovery world. Now, I had no experience I'd never gone to a doctor about depression or anything like that, but I had known several people who had started to get on Prozac or different things that were saying they were getting improved. And so I just kind of mentioned it to her and she was that I don't know about that. And so anyway, I ended up having a visit from my friend Hope who was the hairdresser who we used to meet at her house on Friday nights, So she flew down from Atlanta to Tampa now, Hope was the same age as Carol also, so I remember walking around the neighborhood one night, and Hope said to me in her deep, raspy voice, she said, Jill, you know, Carol has had her, her 20s, and she had her 30s. And she said, you are in your 20s and you need to be living your 20s and having that experience. She said, Carol's ready to to settle down and have a house and a rocking chair and and a life, a home life. And it really struck a chord with me. And I realized that I was still very, very much a young person. And I really wanted to be doing young things, whatever that meant. And I remember one Saturday walking out of an AA meeting, a women's meeting, and and Carol had gone to an Al-Anon meeting. And we came out, and then the Barbara, the depressive artist, and a couple other ladies, we were all going to go to lunch. And we walked out, and there was this group of young people, and they were having this car wash. And they were laughing and spraying each other, and just, it looked so fun. And, and there was a new movement within the the, the structure of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it was called Young People in AA. And so I was like, what is this whole young people in AA? And it was kind of like the a young group of younger people. And I walked by and I remember looking at them and thinking, I wish I could be with them instead of going with these older ladies to the diner to sit for four hours and talk You know, I was kind of getting sick of talking, and really what was happening was that there was that part of myself was starting to churn that discontented, dark side that wanted to fulfill that deep, dark place. It was as if that, they call it the disease. You can call it what you want. You can call it ego disease. I don't really have a name for it. All I know is there was a part of me that was so discontented, I felt like I was going to come out of my fucking skin. And I remember sitting in that diner and drinking the coffee and listening to everybody. And of course I could chime in and I could talk the talk because I had been learning how to talk this talk in this language. But to be perfectly honest, I was starting to be really miserable. And I started taking it out on Carol. I would I would lash out and I, would, I had a wall up and she would try to talk to me and communicate with me. And I remember this anger just boiling up in me. And I remember one night I got so mad. I hit this fan, this hanging fan. I hurt my hand pretty bad. But I felt this violence. And it scared the shit out of me because I thought, I never, ever want to be like my father. I don't want to be a violent person. I don't want to hit people. And I'd never hit anybody sober. I'd hit people plenty of times drunk, of course, mostly in self-defense. But this scared me to a point of calling my friend Hope back in Atlanta. And she wired me money and she said, go get a U-Haul, and get your shit, and get back to Atlanta. And in this time period, I had called my sponsor, and I told her I was coming out of my skin, and I really felt like I was going to drink. And I said, I'm I'm going to smoke then. I, I was almost like threatening her. I mean, she could care less, but I remember her saying to me, always keep a buffer between you and your drug of choice. And for me, If I didn't get some relief, I really felt like I was going to go to the liquor store. All of this turmoil was coming from myself. It was coming from my deep woundedness. It wasn't coming from my surroundings, but I didn't know that. I I could still blame it on circumstantial things. It's an age difference. It's, It's their fault. It's this crazy woman we're living with. It's, I can't find a job. I'm having to work over here for this woman and do all this shit. And I'm not really getting a salary and blah, blah, blah. I pack up the U-Haul. I pack up the kitty cat, Sunny Haney. And I drive back to Atlanta and hope my friend lets me move in with her into this condo on the lake. And I pretty much slept on her couch for several weeks Looking for jobs, looking for jobs, going to AA meetings, kind of coming back with my tail tucked, you know, I was kind of uh, embarrassed and but I go to the meetings and nobody ever holds stuff against you. They're just welcome you back and say, keep coming back. It works if you work it. So I continued, but then I I felt like I was wearing at my welcome at Hopes. And so this other lady said, you can come stay at my house. And her name was Diane and she was very kind. She was a corporate woman. She had a nice home. She welcomed me. I stayed at her house. She had a daughter who was a teenager and I kind of, you know, helped talk to the daughter because I was younger. I was close in age to this daughter and so we kind of became friends. But once again, I felt like I was wearing out my welcome and still looking for jobs and finally landed this job. And it was with this construction company and they did fire restoration. Well, at this point, I would have taken any job. It didn't really matter And so it was all these redneck men and it was like, well, you know, you're going to be like the cleaning lady. And when we go into these houses that are burned out, then you have to go in and clean. And after we get stuff kind of built back and blah, blah, blah. And basically this was a insurance scamming company. Yes, they could do contracting work and they could build back, but they would go into these like really horrible fire ridden situations and they would salvage everything they could as cheaply as they could to get these people back into their home. And a lot of this work was done on the south side of town in this huge African-American population. And what would happen is the house might burn down and then the person, you know, that had homeowner's insurance, they could, they could file a claim But the insurance would only cover so much. But this company, this fire restoration company, would zoom in and, oh, yeah, we can fix it. And they would basically put a Band-Aid on it to get the people back into the house. But then they would take most of the money for all of their services. And so my job was to clean and to, to make things presentable. Well, I was a very good cleaner because I came from the master cleaner, my mother, and I remember going into this house and it was so gross. And I had to actually do some demolition where I had to take a crowbar and knock out sheetrock on walls. And one day I was knocking out sheetrock and these rats came out of the wall. It was like a nightmare. Another day I was doing the same kind of thing and snakes came out of the walls. It was fucking scary. But this one day I was cleaning and, and shoveling and there was just all this burned up material and I was, had this huge flat shovel and I was shoveling stuff and putting it in this dumpster outside and I came across this book, this one book, and the book had not been burned. It was sitting in the middle of all this other stuff. And the name of the book was Open Your Mind to Prosperity. By Catherine Ponder. And I picked that book up and I kept thinking, I have heard this name, Catherine Ponder. And I finally recognized it was a book and a name that Joyce Reynolds had talked about at St. Simon's in this workshop I had gone to. And it was about creative thought. We are what we think about. It talked about cleaning out and clearing out, not only in your physical world, but in your mental world. Well, I took that little book and I hid it and I took it with me. And I think that was the only good thing that came out of that job because it was a nightmare working for this man. He, this old man that owned the company was very racist and very, uh, he hated women, basically, Well, I'd go to my sponsor, Gail, and I would cry and whine about how mean he was. And this one day, there were two men, and they could not read, and they worked as laborers. I think they had been pretty much homeless, and he'd given them jobs, you know, to be laborers, but they couldn't read. And we were down, I'd gotten down to this one area, and they decided that they couldn't read the map. To go take this delivery. One guy had gotten sick and he couldn't, he couldn't drive. And the other man didn't know how to drive the dump truck. And the one guy said, you're going to have to drive the truck. And I got up in this huge tandem dump truck and it had 16 gears. I'll never forget this. And I got the two men in the truck with me. And the one guy, he didn't have a license. And the other guy was sick and they couldn't read either. And I'm like, where the fuck are we going? They go, let's just get on back to the shop. Well, I made it back to Marietta and I drove this massive dump truck. I I guess, you know, I just didn't have a lot of fear when I was younger like that. Not that kind of fear. I'd drive something. Oh, I'll figure it out. And I remember being on the highway, just looking down at people like, Jesus, I could run over everybody in this thing. But we made it back to the shop. And the old man owner came out in the parking lot and saw me wheeling in in that thing. And I thought he was going to kill me. But instead, he held, put his hands on his hips with his big old gut hanging over his pants. He had a white beard, white mustache, white hair, kind of an old, looked like he'd been like a sea captain or something. He had this look, this real weathered look about him and He's like, well, looks like we got us a new truck driver. So I got like a promotion, if you can call it that. I was making $6 an hour. And so he started having me drive this dump truck all over Atlanta and deliver things, pick up things, what have you. One of the things that they would make me deliver were packs of shingles. Shingles weigh a lot. Now, I am not in the best shape at this time, but I always could tap into my strength, and I could always tap into my physicality because I had been an athlete, so I did have some strength. Well, these things were so heavy that I just could barely lift them, and I didn't have any help. So I was telling Gail about it, and she said, you go in and you tell him that you need help with those, period. Oh, my God, I could never. Well, I went back in and I finally went up to the guy. By this time now, I had saved enough money that I was looking for a place to live because I was still sleeping on this lady Diane's couch. But I walked in and I said to him, I'm going to need some help unloading these shingles today. I just don't think I can do it on my own. And he sat in silence and stared at me. He goes, God damn. I guess I'm just going to have to get me a goddamn man. I knew this wouldn't last long. And oh my God. It was like the same old familiar southern man berating this that I was so accustomed to. And. Instead of bowing down and cowing down and apologizing to this motherfucker, I said, well, I guess you will. And I walked out. And then, of course, I panicked because I wasn't sure where I was going to go. What am I going to do now? Oh, my God. And I went back to the lady's house in which I was staying And I told her what had happened, and she was like, it's okay, it's okay, you know, you're going to be okay. She goes, by the way, I have this lawnmower that I was thinking you could have if you want it. And I go, lawnmower? And she said, yeah, it's just this tiny little lawnmower, and I had never seen a lawnmower this small in my life. It was so little, and I could put it in the trunk of my Toyota Corolla, but she offered me this lawnmower, and I thought, well, I guess I could always cut grass, you know, And then, ironically, there was this other lady in the meetings and she came in one day and said, Jill, I brought you something. I said, what? She goes, I've got this weed eater that my mother had in her basement. It doesn't have a gas cap, but it's barely ever been used and you can have it. So it was presented a lawnmower and a weed eater. So in my thinking, I'm thinking, oh, well, I guess the universe wants me to cut grass into weed eat. And so there I had this opportunity, I just basically knocked on doors and some people would hire me to mow and to weed eat for very low amounts of money. But it was enough to kind of get me over this hump. And so I finally looked in the paper. Now in the meantime, I had left Carol in Florida, but we were you know, kind of corresponding. I would call her collect, or We would talk and we're kind of mending things because once you get away from somebody, then you miss them and you feel bad and all that. Well, I found this rental property and I went to this lady's house and she had a big swimming pool and she was kind of like one of those, like a redneck with money. You know, they got the big ranch house with the real trimmed, perfect bushes and Just, I don't know. There's a certain sterile look about it. I don't know how to describe it. But there's a a personality that goes along with it. And her hair was so black. It was so dyed black. There wasn't one strand of any other color except jet black. And she was probably like in her late 60s. It was real interesting. Very tan and really long white painted fingernails. And she told me about this property and it was $300 a month. She required a $300 deposit. Well, I had about exactly the amount and I just took the dive of faith and I rented this place. I went and looked at it and it was in this kind of ghetto-y area over near Marietta Square. But these homes were duplexes and they had been built for basically bell craft, which eventually became Lockheed. So it was Lockheed housing for workers. And this particular spot that I rented was a two-bedroom, one-bath. It had a little fireplace. It was actually pretty cute, but it needed to be cleaned and the carpet ripped out. It needed work. And so I went ahead and just did it because I cannot keep living in people's couches. And so, by this time, Carol and I had talked a lot, and she decided she would come back, and we would try again, and I was like, oh, great. And so, I remember coming home, and I saw her car in the driveway. I had given her the address, and I pulled in the driveway, and I had not seen her in probably six to eight months, and I was really excited to see her, and I came to the door, and the door was locked. And so I knocked on the door, and I knocked on the door, and finally she opens the door with the chain lock, looks out at me with this really kind of angry look. And I went, hey. And then she unlocked the chain, and she opens the door, and the first thing she says to me after all this time is, you mean to tell me that your self-esteem is so low that you think you deserve this as a place to live? And I kind of laughed. And I went, seriously? She goes, I can't live here. This I've lived in New York, New Jersey. This is worse than any kind of place I've ever lived. I can't live here. And I, And I laughed again. I said, you're kidding, right? And she was dead serious. Well, that went all over me. Because I had scraped and saved and put myself through this hell to get enough money to get this place. And for me, it was like, at least I got a place now. The house, the duplex was on Bernie Street. Bernie Street was going to be a huge, huge event in my life. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammered.com, and follow us on social media for updates.